0: Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. With me today is attorney Steve Chu, and we're going to start nerding out about the new Star Trek Picard series. We're going to do an episode a a week after each Picard episode, and this is going to address episode one, Remembrance. Steve, how you doing, buddy?
1: Great. Thrilled to be here and super happy to have Star Trek back on the air.
0: Yeah, this brought me such joy. I can't really explain it. I mean, to, to go from Mandalorian to Picard, we live in a golden age of nerddom right now. And it's... <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it's wonderful to see Patrick Stewart return to this iconic role, especially after you know, it's been so long since Star Trek Nemesis. Uh, and that was, you know, t- reported to be the final appearance of the Next Generation crew. I, I don't think that um, many of us expected really to see him back. Um, and all, although this is not billed as a sequel to Next Generation, it is in the prime universe. And that's, that's what I love, um, you know, what I grew up with. So it, it's just uh, such a thrill. It's like a seeing old friends again, you know.
0: That is, it's well done. It could have been him just talking about wine pairings for an hour, and I would have been
1: ecstatic. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Just to hear that voice. I mean, he could have been you know playing fetch, talking to the dog, and I would show up each week with popcorn in hand, too.
1: And, and I'd be right there with you, absolutely. He's, he's just an outstanding actor, um, done so much for the Star Trek franchise. And, I mean, Captain Picard, you know, talk about an iconic figure, truly
0: it just, it highlights something good and noble and that optimistic future with the backdrop of this show on what happens when somebody loses faith. Cause it's, you know, Star Trek always finds ways to be topical and this clearly does the, I mean, just at a high level, the uh, Synth or Synth, uh, uh, the rogue synthetic uprising, you know, tragically on a, you know, the anniversary of first contact. So that ruins April 4th uh, right. going forward of over 90,000 people dying, uh, you know, it's, it's a parallel to 9-11 and sure. you know, and because he wanted to address things like Brexit and you know, the the election of Trump and do it in a way that's you know, Star Trek-fied and like they, they do a very nice job of addressing those issues of, you know, it's not outright Federation first, but they, y- you see cracks in what we used to see from the next generation. And that's kind of, it's very well done because it's, it's subtle, but you can tell.
1: Yes, uh, you know, as you said, very topical. You've got all those issues you talked about as well as the refugee crisis. Um, which has been addressed, you know, arguably before Star Trek Six um, with the Klingon Empire. And now we're going through it with the Romulans, um, and you know, query: What do we do? Like, it says a lot about us how we react when a you know a, a historical enemy reaches out for help. You know, what do we do? Um, you know, really fascinating stuff. You know, G- Gene Roddenberry was famous for not wanting there to be. Um, Uh, specific types of conflict you know for his box of rules on what he would allow in terms of conflict and that he wanted Starfleet to represent all that was good in humanity and DS9 I think kind of stretched that a little bit and hence we got some of the greatest stories we've ever had really you know um, in the pale moonlight and things like that how far will people go to preserve their way of life Uh, I think we're heading in that direction a little bit here and that's sort of sci-fi at its best when we test the boundaries of kind of what we are, and, you know, how far we're willing to go, right?
0: Absolutely. It just as DS9 had a refugee episode that is more timely now as compared to the late 90s, you know, it, it didn't have the same impact because we didn't have these issues, which is just right. why DS9 is so brilliant and forward thinking of like what war can do to a society. Yes. And then, yes. To, then to, to go to Picard you know being on his chateau with at least two romulan refugees so he's he's brought refugees into his life into his home yes, yes. and given them given them a home and <coughs> yes just, that's just outstanding it's yes again it's everything good and noble that that i love about star trek so Agreed. yeah Well, let's talk about the legal issues associated with this. And let's start with the refugee one that, you know, the Romulan star empire asked for help and the Federation agrees to help them. So did that create a duty to rescue the 900 million Romulans after the Federation vote to evacuate them to escape the, supernova that that we saw on Star Trek 2009. Uh, And and Picard's line, it was downright criminal to abandon the people we were sworn to save. Well, that's absolutely not topical at all. (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, do do you want to like help discuss what the duty to rescue is?
1: Sure. So, you know, let, let's talk about the law a little bit and then we'll talk about um, the Star Trek um, implications here. But the duty to rescue. So generally, if we're looking at sort of a very um, let's let's look, um, you know, at the uh, at the low level. You know, Generally, if we're talking about civil duties, uh, the general rule is that people do not have the legal obligation to help someone else. Um, you don't have a duty to rescue, a duty to assist. Uh, there are many reasons for that, um, but we as a society have generally decided not to impose a legal obligation uh, that would require folks to help other people that are in need. Now, having said that, of course, you know we often do want to help people that are in need. It's just that we don't have a legal obligation to do so, such that if the person who needs the help doesn't get it, they then cannot turn around and sue people saying, well, you should have helped me, and now you owe me tons of money. That's sort of the scenario or the result that the courts and legislatures have tried to avoid. Um, However, we do have, um, well, you know, a companion piece there is that sometimes when people try to rescue or help, uh, let's say, you know, you try to give someone a Heimlich maneuver in a restaurant when they're choking, um, you saved their life, but you could also break a rib and now that person can turn around and sue you. So there are disincentives to trying to rescue or help other people because it could expose you to civil liability. You know, Recognizing that legislatures um, and courts have um, recognized a protection, which is commonly referred to as the Good Samaritan Law, which essentially protects people who try to help others, and thereby may somehow you know unintentionally create some injury or whatnot um but are ultimately able to try to help the people and that there are requirements legal requirements in this good samaritan law and just in the legal analysis um you know just off the top of my head essentially what you have to look at is legally um did you put the person in a worse position did you leave them in a worse position than in which you found them And if so, then you could be in trouble. You could be exposing yourself to some sort of, um, you know, civil liability. Um, But for the most part, these laws are intended to protect a potential rescuer. Someone, you know, if you give someone the Heimlich in a restaurant and you protect them and save their life, even though you cause some injury in doing so, typically you would be protected. Um, If we look at a larger level, you know, uh, natural disaster: fires, floods, and you try to rescue someone. You help them, and you know maybe you break an arm or you know people get injured, but you get them out. Uh, typically, you would be protected. Again, you're trying to help these people, so that that's at sort of a very low level. You know the sort of idea, of the duty to rescue. Now we're, we're taking this up many, many levels of magnitude because we're talking about an entire essentially an entire civilization, the planet of Romulus. You know, let's look at applying this to the Star Trek world now. And obviously, feel free to jump in at any time here, Josh. But, you know, we've really hit on um, one of the key issues of the episode. And just from a Star Trek fan point of view, I absolutely loved the interview because Picard, who is, you know, he's here to talk about the um, memorial, the the remembrance of this Romulan supernova and we as the audience are wondering well why is it that you left S- Starfleet and then we learn and we what we get from Picard is arousing the beginnings of arousing Picard's speech and you know very few people I think can give a speech like he does why did you leave Starfleet Admiral because it was no longer Starfleet and you know just the fire um, you know the conviction right there just gives me chills because it's like wow there he is there's admiral picard captain picard the moral conscience of the galaxy if you will um
0: it's it just i i again it was cheer worthy because it's space grandpa opening up and it's, <laughs> it's just like you, you go boy and yes. uh whatever you say papa uh, <laughs> I, I, again like just just that feeling of uh admiration because it's on one level it's it's a lawyer type argument of you know like it's stuff that we do or more appropriately what we dream of doing of being able to to make an argument like that to to throw down and say no i'm not going to stand by and be a bystander while millions of people die because we go through a tragedy and our reaction to that tragedy that's not connected is to throw in the towel. And because that is, that's not what the Federation is supposed to stand for. And like, I I absolutely get that. Uh, going with the, like the fan Romulan uh, analysis, it's like, okay, we do have the Earth Romulan war, which is sometime during... Uh, what would be the, you know, the Enterprise NX-01 series, yes. and that leads to the founding of the Federation. There's no contact for a century, and we see the Romulans again in uh, Balance of Terror, and that uh, is my favorite original series episode.
1: Yeah, outstanding.
0: Uh, uh, Darmok is number one overall, but Balance of Terror is a close second, and Maybe depending upon my mood, if I've had dinner, it could flip very easily because it's <laughs> it's that good. Uh, but the you know like that raised the possibility of like you no know, two commanders, Kirk and the Romulan commander, not um, played like by having Mark a Leonard. Respect. Yep, there's yeah. that respect for each other, and the and the commanders uh, you know message at the end where Kirk offers to save them. Because, again, yes. it's, that's a very Federation thing, that they don't leave people to die. Even if it's somebody you just fought, there's always that extended hand of, you don't have to die today. Yes. We don't have to be enemies. And that rings true in every Star Trek series. Uh, every captain does it at least once with, it doesn't have to end this way. You can come with me. You don't have to die. And and the Romulan commander says in another Uh, reality you and I could have been friends.
1: Yes, I could have called you friend, absolutely.
0: And so like there was always that hint of a detente with the Romulan Empire that it didn't need to be war and you know it trades back and forth and we can you know there's always you know the debate about you know were the Klingons supposed to be the Soviet Union and the Romulan Empire, you know, uh, the, the People's Republic of China, you know, there's, you know, for the Cold War analogy of potential friends and enemies. And, you know, you know in our, our world, we're pretty good at making enemies our friends, because it's the best way to stop continued violence. You know, we're, uh, Germany and Japan are close allies now. Right. After right after really horrible wars and you know, like that's that's the goal that let's let's be friends and everyone move forward together and that's something star trek has done very well yes so this I- so this idea of trying to save the romulan people so they didn't have to die and cuz romulan colonies were going to get wiped out in the supernova and to to have the federation have a 9-11 type attack on Mars that kills 92,000. I mean, and, and fires that are still burning on Mars 20 years later, or a decade later, that's not good. And for the interviewer to take the position of Romulan lives. Yes. And Picard fire back, no, lives. Lives. It's like, right. it's like you, you go, Grandpa. You know, right. just throw down with... Uh, I mean and in the way that she had this look of duh when he said Dunkirk yes uh, it's, it's like you know she didn't again good poker player like what's that uh, but again like good example bigger would have been boat lift uh, of you know again which is a nine eleven with with getting everyone out of Manhattan and just yeah Tugboat operators, ferries, and anything that floated, getting people off the island of Manhattan after the, the towers fell. See, so, because again, that's something we are good at. You know, hum, as in we, as in humans, we rally. You know, when yes. something, when the disaster happens, we rally because it's who we are. You know, there aren't many people. Well, let, let me rephrase that. Humans might be the only species to run into a fire to go save someone. Maybe a loyal dog, but, you know, you don't, you know, it's just, it's not the lassie come home or black stallion run into the fire to go save people. That's something humans do. And in the idea of trying to evacuate people so they don't die in a supernova is a very human thing and Picard getting very upset over throwing in the towel uh, because this is problematic for the Federation to agree to do something, we're gonna go save you and then say, eh, we just just got attacked, so we're not gonna do it. Uh, I tend to agree with Picard, it was downright criminal To leave millions of people to die. Right. Um,
1: You know, so I mean, to take the other side of that, um, and here's why I think this is really fascinating. Um, We've got the decision initially to help the Romulan Empire. uh, And we learned that that is controversial. And it makes sense that it would be because the Romulans are an age old enemy. So, one can imagine the debates that may have happened within the Federation Council among the members, the, count, the delegates, uh, that ultimately they did decide, okay, we will extend this whole branch and try to help out uh, an enemy in need. However, you know, there, it, that decision would not have been without some detractors and some opposition. And then the real question is, well, how far are we willing to go here how far you know, does our dedication extend? Because we get this 9-11 event, the synthetic attack on Mars, which destroys the entire rescue fleet. Well, at this point, point, you know, one could very credibly make the argument that, look, Romulans, we've tried very hard to help you. We built an entire rescue fleet to attempt this Dunkirk evacuation. And we were not expecting to be attacked at the Utopia Planitia shipyards and have them wiped out because these are the main shipyards for constructing starships. Um, you know, we made a good faith effort. Our entire rescue fleet's wiped out. We need to take care of our own now. We need to lick our wounds, and we we just can't help you any further.
0: You know, that's that's a good argument for the synthetic attack was an <coughs> intervening factor that would have been outside of the control of the Federation. Thus, you know, it it. Alleviates the duty to rescue, but with that, like the clock's still ticking. There's still time to rally, and this was signing the death warrant of what 900 million people, saying, yeah. "Sorry, you're gonna die. Not our problem." Uh, I mean, like that's it's just that's very unlike Federation values. Um, it'd be one thing if it was Romulan terrorists who had destroyed the the shipyards. Because then it's, it's like, okay, it's an act of war. We're going to leave you leave you to die. Uh, but again, it still boils down to, we're going to leave you to die. You know, even uh, going back to Star Trek VI with, you know, uh, the Kittimer Conference and, you know, the potential detente or peace with the Klingon Empire. You know, the, there was the Kirk-Spock debate of, you know, with Kirk saying, you know, uh, with Spock saying, you know, Jim, they're dying. And Kirk responding, let them die. And, you know, Kirk backed off from that position. But it's, it just, it highlights, they made peace with the Klingons. Someone is your enemy if you make them your enemy. And I mean, that's not to say that there aren't horrible people out there that, you know, that need to be confronted I mean, you know, heck, we're lawyers, like that's part of the thing that we do. Um, Standing up for the rights of others, it's it's what we do. Uh, But the entire concept of peace and not making another nation your enemy when you can make them friends uh, or at least give them a fighting chance for life. Now it goes to the very values of Star Trek and I'm like, and that really does have its root in you know the greatest generation. I'm like, and in how that came to fruition, to you know, in the original Star Trek series in the '60s, and how they really doubled down on it with the next generation.
1: Yeah, you know, there's so much to unpack there, Josh. And I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but <clears throat> as you pointed out, we have the prior precedent in Star Trek VI. Where um that you know, if we look at the historical context um star trek six came out, I think it was nineteen ninety one if I recall correctly uh we're talking about the time when the soviets the, the you know we were making peace with Russia you know, the um the wall has fallen, communism is going down, and we're looking at Russia not as an age-old enemy, a Cold War enemy. We're starting to look at them more as a partner. Uh, and can we do that? You know, how how are we able to forge ahead with that? Chancellor Gorkin, you know, tells Admiral Kirk at the time, or Captain Kirk at the time, you know, if there is going to be a brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. And he was right, you know, change is very difficult, but necessary. And then we fast forward to the next generation and we have a Klingon on the bridge. And that is just a shock, you know, for original series fans at the time, but a sign of how far we've come. And now, can we extend that kind of model paradigm to what we've got going on in Picard now with the Romulan Empire? I don't know if people have been reading the Countdown comics. Um, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say but the two Romulans that are living with Picard actually are Tal agents from one of Picard's last missions the mission that is portrayed in the Star Trek Countdown comics issue three of the three-part series is going to drop this week so we don't know how it concludes but in it Picard you know spoiler alert Picard goes out to a planet to evacuate some Romulans and he encounters these two Tal Shiar agents who are the two that are now living in his winery. And we get some very brief scenes of the two of them um, going to earth to his winery and saying, we need to help him, we owe him so much, he risked everything for us. We still don't know exactly what he did because we haven't had the last issue drop yet, <clears throat> but there's a, a real history there. Um, and then again, we get back to where we started this part of the conversation, Picard with that stirring speech, it was no longer Starfleet. Yeah. It's not what we are, it's not who we are. That echoes back, and this is a bit of a deeper cut perhaps, but for people, for fans who read um, you know, Michael Piller, who was the showrunner of Next Generation starting around season three, <laughs> and he also wrote, um, wrote, he wrote many of the episodes and he wrote the, um, the script for Insurrection, uh, which I think is fair to say is probably not the favorite Star Trek Next Generation movie out there. However, Michael Piller wrote a book about how he wrote the screenplay for Insurrection and originally he had a lot of ideas and suffice to say that the final movie was a very different product from what he envisioned and he had written into the original story Uh, a part where Picard learns that Starfleet is doing things that it does not stand for, and Picard gives this rousing speech to the Federation Council, lecturing them, saying, this is not who we are, you know, we have to remember who we are. So even just the brief Picard saying it was no longer Starfleet, kind of harkens back to that, that Picard is our our conscience
0: again. Uh, Agreed, and I haven't been reading the countdown comic, but I've uh, been following some of the articles about it because it, it sounds wonderful. And it's very good. <laughs> it's again, they they we have a creative team that understands the character, that understands the prior source material, and and that works well for storytelling and. You know, the the one hypothetical question
1: that kept jumping out at me when I was watching Picard and reading the Countdown comic, let us assume just for a moment that the situations, the roles were reversed. And let's say that there was a Terran supernova and we needed help and we asked the Romulan Empire for help. What do we think they would do?
0: Let the humans die. I I think, well, there'd probably be some debate and it also depends when. But if it's post... Uh, uh, after, you know, Spock's reunification efforts and living on Romulus and after the events of Nemesis, there probably would be at least robust debate about do we do this or not? Because peace is a choice when it comes to foreign policy.
1: Right.
0: It's like we could still hold a grudge with Great Britain and we don't. You know, like we, we could have a Cold War with Canada you know if if we had wanted to you know be bitter towards the british empire and like and that's not what we did like we right, made friends right, right. and uh and, you know canadians and americans travel back and forth and get along it's you know it's like it's who we are yes. um and, and again germany and japan are great examples of former enemies we're now friends and you know, we did an exact revenge, uh, you know, after the war, we, you know, we didn't do a treaty of Versailles type, you know, uh, harsh sanctions, uh, for, for the war itself. We rebuilt them and we moved forward So th- yes. the idea of like, what is peace? What is prosperity? What is, you know, uh, let, let's not sow the seeds for a future war by learning to live together and to not antagonize one another, and I mean so much of this boils down to you know the you know the the attack that happens. But let's let's break this into two. So the first part is our uh, Romulans refugees because of the supernova, and uh, Bethany Bingford, uh one of one of our. Many legal geeks wrote a wonderful blog post explaining, probably not, because the way that the current laws are written, um, it's the uh, 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees doesn't include environmental disasters. Because <laughs> no one was thinking about that in 1951. Right. Maybe if a, six years after World War II, no one thought of that. You know, no one thought about, uh, you know, a a Mount Vesuvius-type eruption taking place. Or, you know, it's like, hey, what happened to Pompeii? Like, no one thinks in those terms or thought in those terms in 1951. You know, it could be. I mean, when I, I remember being you know, in poli-sci classes at Davis long ago in the 90s. That, uh, you know, the idea that there could be future wars over water,
1: you know, because
0: of scarcity of water that, and again, like armed conflict between the United States and Mexico over water rights, like that, those sort of things still could happen. Uh, So it's definitely, I mean, I think in the spirit of what is a refugee, they would qualify under the current text of international law, we don't include uh, an environmental disaster. But if your home is, again, your planet's gonna blow up because of a supernova, you're not gonna have a home anymore. Like, (laughs) it's like there's no homeland to go to. And especially if, you know, how much of the Romulan star empire was going to be destroyed, and also the you know that supernova had like a galaxy wide threat which was why ambassador spock did what he did with the uh, red matter to cause it to collapse right so yeah quick way of saying technically no spirit of the law absolutely
1: yeah i think that's correct and also if we look for a little bit of star trek context here Many of the next generation episodes involve the Enterprise going to a planet, visiting, and helping them deal with some natural disaster, containing, you know, whether it be contained earthquakes, tidal waves, uh, approaching meteors, something like that. So, if we look at it from that perspective, it really is not unusual for the Enterprise or for the Federation to be helping out other planets. But what makes this situation different is that, of course, it's an age old enemy now. It's the Romulan Star Empire. It's not just a member Federation world or even a non-member world who's just asking for help. In those situations, I don't think there really would be any debate. The Federation Council were to say, "Okay, we'll send a ship to try and help you." But here, what makes it hard is the history between the two, um, you know, the two governments.
0: Well, that and it's a full-on evacuation of you know nine hundred million <clears throat> people. That's that's a big number. and, yeah. and again. They were planning something to take years, because it's not just one planet; it's multiple planets right, to be right. to be evacuated. So there's, I mean, there there are differences there, and like our own military has a very proud history of helping people. Uh, uh, one one example is um, from the '90s, and this was a presentation I saw as a as a youth and Sea Scouts. That had uh, was the then captain of the Abraham Lincoln, who his like he starts his command, and there is the volcano that goes off in the Philippines. So their orders are to go evacuate the Philippines. So the the like the first week on the job was let's go evacuate all these people who. Don't want volcanic ash and lava coming down and ending their lives, and it's it's uh, the, the talk was amazing, and uh, also hysterical because they started uh, people brought their pet dogs, mm-hmm. and you know the, and there's like hundreds of dogs showing up with all these people, and like aircraft carrier isn't designed to be a kennel, so they, uh, you know, he contacts the, the local admiral and says, like, hey, what do we do with, like, you know, all these dogs that are showing up, and in the, you know, the admiral says, like, oh, okay, I'm gonna go check the book and, like, let you know, and the admiral come back comes back and says, like, well, the rule book says you should shoot the dogs, and the uh, captain said, we're not gonna shoot the dogs, like, and they, uh, uh, so they brought all the dogs on board, and they used, they put, the, uh, you know, like the leashes, like with the aircraft tie-down straps that, you know, that you would use to tie down an airplane, and then they sent the marine detachment into town to go get dog food, and they (laughs) came back with lots of dog food, and the captain asked, you know, the marine captain, how'd you get all this dog food, to which the captain, the marine captain stated, sir, if you don't ask, I don't have to lie, and which was later explained that, they went the marines went and raided every store for all the dog food they could they took abandoned pickup trucks and brought everything back to the ship and like that's how they saved the dogs and got dog food for them because it's what we do as a people so you know evacuating an entire planet is a lot different than evacuating cities you know, in the philippines but again You know there's military precedent for doing that sort of thing because we're the good guys like it's what we do
1: yeah no i I think you make some excellent points i think the one could imagine these exact same arguments being made on the floor of the federation council in favor of helping romulus um i i would be more curious just from a narrative point of view just to see what the discussion would have been like after the attack on mars um, you know that, I think, would have changed the context for a lot of people who were saying, look, we need to take care of our own at this point. We have just suffered a catastrophic attack. Uh, what good are we going to be helping other people if we can't help ourselves, right?
0: There's a difference between a catastrophic attack that takes out your shipyards, and again, a large number of people, because 92,000 people dying is 92,000 families losing someone. And that's horrible, but it's not your planets are blowing up. Yeah. And, you know, it's the Federation isn't about to get, you know, wiped out by a supernova. So there's still, pe- you know, it's an active step to say, we're going to leave you to die. And that's abhorrent. And maybe that's why it's the Vulcans that send the jellyfish with Spock to yes. try to save <laughs> Maybe it's that's why it's a Vulcan effort with them going like, eh, yeah, they're distant cousins, and we just we they marched under the raptors' wings, but we're not going to leave them to die because that's how we ensure people stay, you know, embittered towards you. Uh, now let's take take a look at the synthetic attack on Mars. Do you think that's an act of terrorism? <laughs>
1: so I think that as with some of the major events that have uh, occurred already, we are gonna need some more information. We're gonna need more facts. Um, And a lot of these seem to be unknown right now because Picard says we still don't know why they attacked. So it's really hard to say. It, it, It does seem like it was a surprise, a complete surprise. If we combine this with the short Trek, the Children of Mars, Uh, where we see the attack on Mars from the point of view of two school children whose parents work at the utopia planitia shipyards. It's very clear that this was a complete bolt out of the blue. Uh, I think in many ways the 9-11 analogy may be appropriate, but I think we can only take that analogy so far too because the synthetics, I mean, I guess we have to have a couple assumptions here and any any of these assumptions could be incorrect. Uh, You know, we may find out later on, but the assumptions we have to go based off of, I think, so far are, number one, at some point, there were additional artificial life forms created beyond just data before, you know, people that um, the Soong, you know, that Noonien Soong created. Uh, presumably, these were androids created most likely by the Daysterm Institute, which we see is based in Okinawa, under the direction most likely of Bruce Maddox. Uh, query then is you know is dodge one of these uh, synthetics Uh, were there you know so that's sort of assumption one is that there are other synthetics out there number two I think we have to assume that they were created by Starfleet not by other private inventors or or, you know maybe we will find that they were created by people outside the government like another Union soon but the only person we know of that was really actively working on this research within Canon you know, within the shows was Bruce Maddox. So I suspect he's going to play some other role here. And then I think assumption three is that there was some kind of revolt or rebellion um, and some, something led to, led to that type of event. The closest analogy I can think within the Star Trek world right now is the hologram example with the EMHs you know, from Star Trek Voyager, because at some point we see the holograms working as miners on some sort of, you know, workers colony. Did we have something like that happen with synthetic life forms? You know, did the Federation create a number of synthetic artificial life forms and use them for worker labor, slave labor? This gets all the way back to Measure of a Man, you know, that fantastic legal episode very early in the show. And Picard says to that at that point, we're talking about slavery if we allow Bruce Maddox to disassemble data and just build synthetics at will, we're talking about creating a slave race. And that's an idea that has really been explored in many other sci-fi properties. Um, Notably the matrix, for example, we create a whole bunch of AIs and they rise up against us. Um, You know, in Terminator, we create Skynet and they rise up against us. It usually doesn't end well, you know, for us when we create a, um, a slave race like that. And so query, is that what happened here? Uh, you know, we don't know yet. Maybe those gaps will be filled in.
0: Agreed. There are too many unanswered questions because normally if there's an act of terrorism, it's calculated to influence the conduct of government and they rise up and no one knows why and they, they do a massive attack that destroys the Romulan rescue fleet. So that doesn't make any sense. So what did the synthetics not want the Romulans saved? That's weird. Like why wouldn't they want the Romulans saved? And so, is that why we
1: have these Romulan assassins out to get a synthetic lifeform in Dodge? Are they is this payback, you know? Who knows.
0: Yeah yeah well I, again, I think that's that's the purpose of the story, which I'm delighted that we get something to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I also like the script flip that Bruce Maddox is, you know, a hero now because <laughs> he, and like, he wasn't a bad guy in Measure of, of a Man, but he was radically insensitive to Data's needs and what, uh, you know, disassembling Data and Data being concerned with like you don't have the skill set to do this, like you could kill me, and like again, legitimate concern for Data's rights. Maddox does like a complete flip because of that interaction and we have agnes say something along the lines of you know that that uprising and and then the subsequent ban crushed maddox and he disappeared right so it's like okay so i don't think he's i i think this is a horrible thing that just broke him and he went into hiding doing you know he disappeared to probably continue his work which is how we end up with the twins and uh, again that's fascinating Uh, yes
1: and it's not without precedent if we look at uh, the stories of Nguyen Soong and Mm -hmm. I was looking recently at my old um, FASA Star Trek Next Generation handbook officer's manual and when they introduced Nguyen Soong they say he after multiple failures actually retreated to a colony so he could be outside the prying eyes of scientific community so that he could just experiment in peace uh and then that's when he was able to make lore first then data and you know the the two soon androids and then you know later retconned with b4 um but that's when soon was able to achieve some success query if maddox is kind of a modern day soon you know is he um following in that path and has he had some success uh, I think that we're left so far to believe that Dodge is probably the result of Maddox's work but you know we'll find out more over time I think
0: uh, Agreed because when she talked to when Dodge talked to her mom and mom already knew that her daughter had seen Picard it's like yes. okay that's what's going on here so there's there're a bunch of things in play and right. is Maddox actually dad or somebody else who was involved uh, with this uh, and and not just the botanist playing with flowers. So there's interesting questions there. It also raises interesting questions about liability for the rogue synthetic attack because if they since the the synthetics were made at the Daystrom Institute and we don't know what they were doing like we don't know if they were fully functional individuals or it didn't sound like it. They sounded not to the same level of sophistication as data was. So I don't know where they are on, you know, the robot spectrum of looking alive, but something triggered them to, to go out and kill. And were they on Mars working? Like what, like what's the connection there? And cause Picard, doesn't sound like they were being exploited. Because if they were being exploited, I'm pretty sure he would have said something. And that he also disagreed with the ban. So again, lots of questions. Uh, I do think Datestrom could have some liability issues if they made uh, androids that then go on a killing spree. I think there's a product liability question there with they're not supposed to go on a killing spree boys what did you do? And that raises interesting questions. But the fact they end yes. up with a a treaty ban, which means it's not just the Federation, it's other governments that have agreed to ban synthetics. Uh, that raises a whole bunch of questions. Uh, never mind the fact that they disassembled B4 and put him in a box. Uh, he might have been simple, but he was still know
1: met the qualities of life right so you know unpacking that a little bit further with regard to the liability of the daystrom institute i think a lot of it just depends on how you classify these synthetic life forms are they individual autonomous beings or are they some form of property and therefore you can proceed liability wise against the property owners or creators if we use the analogy of children for example In our legal system, children generally cannot be held responsible for many of their actions. In fact, if a child commits something or causes some damage or injury, the proper um, remedy, if there is any, is typically to go after the people who are responsible for the child, whether it be the parents or supervisory adults or whoever was just taking care of the child at the time. That sliding scale of responsibility shifts more and more towards the individual as the child ages and presumably becomes more responsible. And that's how our legal system deals with the responsibility of people as they age from children to adults. Now, could we apply that similar scale here? You know, if the the more the synthetics are seen as individual autonomous beings, the more responsibility arguably they would shoulder, but if they were just simply more like drones and you know, just following simple commands, well then you have a much stronger argument in that situation for liability against their creators, um, presumably the Days you know, the Days Institute, as the episode says. So again, we have some unanswered questions here that would really turn the question of liability. We just need to know a little bit more, I think, in that area.
0: Again, which is why I'm so grateful to have the show on, because I'm sure we're gonna get that. We'll yeah, get that, right.
1: And you know the the visuals that are fascinating, and you know I love this this issue that we're talking about, this ban on synthetics, um, Josh, but the visuals, when we see the Daystrom Institute, it's not a busy place. It's a beautiful, beautiful facility, but there is one person working there on that particular day. The whole lab is essentially shuttered down. It's almost amazing that the lab even exists after the attack. Uh, we get Alison Pill, who's always a lot of fun, um, Agnes Gerardi uh, I think is her name in this, um, who explains, well, we aren't even allowed to build anything. It's all kind of hypothetical and we kind of run these experimental models. So then it sort of raises the question, um, sort of like an office space. Well, what is it that you do then, right? <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> She's just there with her red stapler in the corner. Yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> Uh, it, it's, I'm a people person. Yeah, I uh,
1: <laughs> I'm a synthetic person, really. <laughs> <laughs> I have synthetic skills.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Uh, it's just, it is fun, and it's fun to think about, uh, and especially, like, again, the long history of, you know, Daystrom, you know, going back to, you know, the original yeah, series five, of- yeah. with uh (laughs) with the war game that goes bad yes yeah there's there's the
1: ultimate computer
0: yep uh wonder Yeah. um captain Dunsell. uh so uh again for those who aren't star trek fans uh, we're going deep into nerdery right now but yes that's uh, uh proudly yeah What do you mean you don't know that term? Yeah. It's it's a wonderful catalog of episodes you can enjoy. uh, Start now. Um, uh, Yeah, lots of great issues. And again, the floating building that's kind of off the coast is also interesting. It's like, okay, what goes on there? Right, right. I mean, that's an interesting way to keep the uh, minimized building on okinawa and if you just have floating structures instead that uh for environmental impact purposes that's interesting right
1: you know so interesting questions about the ban here josh i mean mm-hmm. it, can we can we think of a real world analog i mean i guess the closest would be if there were a ban on um, genetic cloning for example Um, you know these are you know bioethics is kind of where we're getting a little bit the creation possible creation of new life if there were a ban on synthetics and it's interesting that even in the 24th century we are still somewhat of a reactionary society you know the ban is reactive after a disaster not not prospective Um, but we're responding to a disaster by enacting this sweeping legislation that probably would not have been um, possible but for this huge tragedy so now we have this ban on synthetics and, and the ban appears to be you cannot create new synthetic life forms um, we had discussed this a little bit uh, before even starting the recording today but does this also mean that you know if you encounter a synthetic life form out there is their life essentially forfeit under this treaty i mean how does all this work it, you know th- there are some interesting questions
0: Oh it's Okay, again, B4 is in a dra- drawer, so I'm pretty sure yes. it's, that didn't end well. You know, I also don't think that we would have had the Patriot Act or FISA courts without 9-11 happening because we weren't proactive and going like, hey, what's a thoughtful way to protect us from terrorist activities? Right. We didn't, and instead we overreact as opposed to, which again, that's very normal that after a period of relative peace throughout the 90s, you know, we had our proxy war in Iraq uh, and, and what happened in Kosovo and in Bosnia. Again, a relative quiet decade of peace, unless you were in one of those places where horrible things were happening. And the beginning of the 21st century, we have a terrorist attack on our country and we sh- flip out. And some of it was necessary, some of it wasn't. Uh, but the fact that legislation was ready to go says a lot. And, you know, 2019 years later, here we are. Uh, there is, a, I think, a historical comparison that could be made here to the eugenics laws that we had in the yeah. United States. Right. You know, and, you know, in the famous Supreme Court uh, opinion that dealt with um, uh, sterilizing people, saying that three yes. generations of morons or or of idiots are enough and you know at the one of the dark sides of the progressive era in the you know 1910s was the pseudoscience of saying like well you know people from you know the mediterranean era you know like have these low sloping brows and thus are of less intelligence and uh, just, and, and people from the, uh, the the Nordic and, you know, dramatic countries are supposed to be smarter and, you know, all this crap that was just lies, just absolute BS. And legislation gets passed uh, that impacts how people uh, can procreate The uh, and, like, this idea of, like, oh, criminals shouldn't be able to, to have kids. Uh, just real sick, twisted stuff that Went away. Unfortunately, we inspired the Nazis, and they took U.S. law and cranked it up to eleven with the horrors that they did upon everyone they didn't like in Europe, and which was again appalling. So, is banning? I think banning synthetic life is along those lines. You know, it's it's a form of eugenics, but with viewing life that's mechanical or yes. Bio-me- biomechanical.
1: Yes. Um, um, you know, we, we also had, uh, going along with the line of precedent that you were talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, we had the Supreme Court step into this issue in a case called Skinner versus State of Oklahoma in 1942. And in that case, the rights of the reproductive rights of criminals were raised because there, were, there was a law that, um, that forced the sterilization of criminals with the idea being that, well, we don't want you to have any more children because they may be, for, they may be criminals as well. And the Supreme Court said, well, that violates the, um, the Bill of Rights, the 14th Amendment, and people do have this absolute right. You can't, rather, the way it's framed is the government does not have the right to take away that person's ability to reproduce. Um, So we have, you know, people, some people would argue we've got the Supreme Court coming in to be sort of a moral conscience in a way and saying, look, here is the boundary, you can't go past this point in terms of legislation. You know, so if we're looking at in the Star Trek world here, if we're looking at the ban on synthetic life as saying, well, we cannot reproduce um, additional artificial life forms you know, let, let's apply that for a moment. Let's say Data is still alive and he tries to create his daughter law in this environment. Um, would he be in violation of that treaty, of that law? It seems likely that he would be. So we've now taken away his right to reproduce. Um, you know, d- what about Data's constitutional rights? He was ruled not to be property, you know, to be a person in measure of a man. So he's got some rights as well, at, at least.
0: Agreed. Uh, it also raises interesting paternity issues with the androids but i think we'll get to that a little bit. <laughs>
1: yeah one one complicated issue at a time right Josh?
0: <laughs> yeah yeah this is already going to be a nosebleed and uh, a new legal analysis so let's 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 pump the brakes and wait for more facts to come in uh, wow. we here here's a cute one and again uh, we don't have enough facts to answer it of how to classify the Rom- Romulan attackers upon Dodge? and are they state actors, are they terrorists, are they a gang? And I think the best answer is we don't know yet because we don't know yet. Uh, and it's weird for her sister to be working at the Romulan reclamation site if they're not uh that that would imply that they're not state actors of some kind because if she's already you know within romulan jurisdiction why have this uh kind of a a spy network go after her you know like is this tal shiar or something else uh on the flip side you know that one rom romulan attacker did i think bite down on a tooth in order to do a suicide pill or something along those lines that caused him to spit uh, acidic blood. So again, that was was new, that was different. Also very very, young,
1: it was very odd. I I replayed the episode, I I watched the episode many times um, and I replayed the scene of Dodge's supposed death uh, several times. I'm still very confused as to what happened. The, the attacker has a weapon. She throws him over a bar. He spits at her while she's holding the rifle. And then this appears to be some form of acid that's disintegrating her. And then we get an explosion, which I think is her weapon exploding. And then we just don't see her. So there's no body. And Picard knocks out and wakes up back at his home all of a sudden. And there's a lot of gaps there. You know, the police said they didn't see anyone else. So what happened? I think that, there's a strong possibility Dodge didn't die, that she could have been beamed away or something else happened. Um, you know, Maybe she didn't receive enough damage to die and she could have self-repaired somehow, but w- it's odd how just narratively, everyone seems to accept, okay, Dodge is dead. Well, huh? okay.
0: Yeah, I think that was, yeah, that I, I. this is the one part of the story that I had problems with, of we have her, quote, die, end quote, Nobody was she just vaporized in this explosion, but you know, the 80 the year old survives the explosion that launches him, what 100 feet. Um, yeah, medicine's good, and and they probably could fix those type of injuries, but that's uh, uh we, we saw she was a really good jumper, we, <laughs> we saw she could make a break for it, and and then the like the twin MacGuffin. Um, you know, it did cause me to do a double take. Um, that was the only thing that that I questioned story wise in the episode. But um, I trust where they're going and we'll just wait for the story to unfold. Uh, but that was the only. Uh, I, I I did have an eye roll with that of twins. Um, that that did trouble me some.
1: Um, yeah, the idea of twins was interesting, because we've had that introduced before with lore and data, but now this idea of fractal neurotic twins, uh, okay, you know, so they have to be created in pairs now? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, again, I trust them. Let's see what they do. But I, I, I won't lie, I did roll my eyes at that point. That's, uh, but that was the only eye roll compared to discovery (laughs) episode one where there were lots of eye rolls so totally different (laughs) scenarios
1: yeah lots lots of joy in this episode
0: yeah it's i mean i won't hide my feelings that you know it took uh the next generation two seasons to figure out what they were doing and it took roddenberry leaving in order for the writers to be free creatively to start doing bolder stories that made more sense than that I thought were better. So, you know, they, they had to save the show from Gene Roddenberry. This starts out strong the entire time. So there's, uh, you know, Discovery took half a season to remember how to make Star Trek. Like this isn't suffering from that. And that's, I think, because of the lead actor and because of who's involved in making it.
1: Uh, yeah, so. absolutely.
0: Now, something else we don't have enough to answer the question, but at least we can opine on what does it mean. We have the status of this Borg cube, you know, and it's labeled the Romulan reclamation site. So was this cube damaged in the supernova? Was this the cube that the Romulans used to uh, enhance Nero ship the Narada? because that had Borg, te- Borg technology on it that gave it its enhanced weapons. So is that you know, connective tissue uh, there? And what are they doing? Are they just experimenting on Borg? Or are they trying to, why are they there? And what's their intent? And why would you call it a reclamation site when it's clearly Borg and not Romulan in nature? And there there are satellites around it hol- either holding it in stasis or in place. Uh, and the, the ship is clearly damaged. Right.
1: So these are great questions um, to which we do not yet know the answer. And that's what's going to make the ride a lot of fun, I think. You know, we, it's not until the very last shot of the episode that we see the Borg cube. Um, I, I'll say just as a fan for a moment here that the show is not going in the direction that I had expected because when the show was first announced and you see the other cast members and we've got, um, you know, we have Jerry Ryan returning as seven of nine, uh, although I don't know what her name is. If she goes by, um, on, uh, you know, Annika now, um,
0: uh, yeah, I, was, right. I hope
1: Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or if she still goes by seven, I don't know. And we have Jonathan Del Arco returning as Hugh who I, you know, love. Um, so, when you see those people returning, you're thinking, at least I was thinking, well, okay, there's certainly going to be a large Borg storyline here. If, you know, even if at a minimum it's going to play a big part in the season, if it's not the overarching theme. Um, But then we also get these references to data, the synthetic life forms. And I was thinking, well, we may be seeing a matrix kind of story where we've got a slave race and Picard has to speak out, you know, in their, uh, on their behalf. Um, but we didn't get that either because what we have is just this 9-11 like attack on Mars by the synthetics. So, that, you know, there's a number of um, mysteries. I wasn't really expecting us to get a Data's daughter type of story because I'm looking at her thinking, well, I initially thought she was going to be the newborn queen and she's connected to Picard through his role as Lecutus and she comes to him for guidance. And maybe now we can kind of take the Borg into a future where they're not as malevolent as they were before Um, but it doesn't seem that we're going in that direction it seems that we've got sort of lol too in a way you know Data's daughter again Um, and there's that real personal connection to uh, Picard which I think is is terrific and it's great to have Data I mean I wonder if he's going to be relegated to these visions and dreams or if he's going to actually return which would be outstanding, um, you know, if, if that's possible. So, which is all just a long way of, you know, getting back to the status of the Borg cube. I think that, you know, a couple of assumptions again here. We probably have to assume that this Borg cube was damaged somehow, the Romulans were able to capture it. It probably was the basis for some of the technology used to build the Narada, as was reported in the Star Trek Countdown comic leading up to the 2009 Star Trek movie. That makes a lot of sense, I think. And, you know, we we don't really have a lot of Romulan-Borg conflict on screen. I mean, we, we have them mentioned in seasons one and two a little bit that, the Romulans are investigating destroyed outposts, and we later learn, okay, that probably was the Borg. But really, the Romulans end up leaving it to the, to the Federation, you know, to fight the Borg. Uh, we don't hear too much about the Romulans tangling with them, so it's likely this was a damaged cube that they found and they rebuilt. Uh, whether it was damaged by the supernova or some other means, we don't know. Uh, you know, if 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 that's the case, I mean, let's just come up with a set of facts here. Let's say that the Romulans come across. This damaged board cube, and they take it over. Uh, is it essentially abandoned property at that point? You know, do they have rights to kind of? Is it sort of like naval salvage rights? Um, maybe. You know, uh, it's difficult to envision a scenario where the board kind of come up to the Romulans and say, "Hey, we're going to take you to court. We want our cube back." And that's not really the way the board work. You know, um, but you know, if they wanted to try to go that route, would they have a remedy?
0: Yeah,
1: I don't know. Maybe.
0: Because yeah. warships generally belong to their nation, so which is like why when we found the Bismarck, we I, I was not involved, but when Bob Ballard found the Bismarck, they kept the location secret and um, you know, treated it as a war grave. Uh, with, with the Borg, I mean, are those satellites masking its location so that way the collective can't find it, that they don't know what happened to it? So, because again, it's, that would be sounding the dinner bell of like, hey, we got a ship here, No, go get it. There are also bigger issues from how Voyager ended that could have been highly yes. destructive. Yes. Uh, from, was it, Unimatrix Zero? And, you know, which was, you know, the, the Matrix-type episodes of uh, pertaining to the Borg. And, and Voyager ultimately getting home, like they leveled a couple crippling blows to the Borg collective. Yes. Uh with Jane Way's you know, famous line of uh must have been something you assimilated of <laughs> of you know how to you know break the collective. So yeah again we'll we'll see uh what happens uh if like what's the status of the Borg. I saw one photo of Hugh with his you know kind of deborged look yes. so he looks yes. And, and that looked awesome. Yeah. Uh, but pivoting to data, you know, in Nemesis, you know, the entire B4 line with, you know, data's memories getting into B4 made data's death a cheat. Like it, because it's like, okay, so it had no, there was no sacrifice because we get data 2.0. And the Picard series undoes that uh, with it didn't work. And from I read something along the lines that part of uh, Brent uh, Spiner's requirements for coming back was Data's death had to have significance and relevance. So him appearing to Picard in dreams makes sense. Data had lots of Data had dream episodes. He did. And fun holodeck episodes. And it would make sense that Picard has this lingering feeling of loss because. He was clearly very fond of data, data saved his life. And it would make sense that there's that uh, connection there and him being haunted uh, by what's going on. And and also the fun issue of dream analysis of when you have a lifetime of knowledge and you're trying to work something out, it's your subconscious that's also helping you figure out, you've seen that girl before in a painting. Right. <clears throat> after after what had to be a horrible night's sleep on his desk of uh of <laughs> waking up and going like wait a minute I'm going to the archives like that right. uh yeah I think you know however they got parts of data's neuronet, I mean that could have been something Maddox and data had traded, you know, long before Data died.
1: Chad. Possibly. Yeah. Because in, in the episode, Data's Day, he's reporting to Bruce Maddox and giving him an update on how he's doing. So we know he kept in touch with Bruce Maddox. And that, that says something about Data, too. He didn't kind of hold a grudge, so to speak. He found the research interesting and wanted to help Maddox continue.
0: Well, And it's also the, the nature of Star Trek of let's not repeat like long grudges. And again, it's the balance of terror of, of uh, it was their war, not our war and not to fall into this trap of you know let's go fight the refight the civil war like no let's not like let's let's not or you know talking with uh, again either let's say people in japan or germany about the horrors of world war ii let's not refight the war it's over let's learn from it and let's move forward together and that's something star trek does very well as evident by the original series, again, having Sulu and Chekhov on the bridge, sending a message of, you can have peace and you can have a future together. So uh, again, I'm I'm very grateful to have this series back or this character back uh, for at least another, what, nine weeks and they're filming season two.
1: I'm beyond thrilled to have uh, Picard and you know all our all our beloved characters back again. It's 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 outstanding.
0: Did you see uh, Patrick Stewart on the View uh, with the <laughs> with Whoopi Goldberg?
1: Yes, and I loved uh, Whoopi Goldberg's uh, reaction. I would love to see Guinan back again. The Alorans, the Watchers, you know, the listeners really. Um, that would be terrific. You know, the more we see of next generation cast members, um, I think the the greater it will be, so long as they can be woven in organically for the story. Um, but that'll just be wonderful.
0: Yeah, not nostalgia for the sake of nostalgia. Exactly. You know,
1: it's it's, like, it's got to make sense. Look, look
0: here, look here, look here, look here. It, it has to. It has to be meaningful, and it has to you know be touching, yes. and. Um, just just the way that they interacted on the view with her getting up and going over and hugging him and, and saying, yes,' I'm just like it's just nerds across the country all sobbing hysterically, it's, yes, uh, loved it, okay, standing ovation, and that looked like there were more people in the audience who were trek fans than that they normally would have at a recording of the view. yes,
1: um, yeah, it was wonderful,
0: good. yep, so with that, we um stay tuned for more. Uh, we'll, we'll cover these weekly in addition to other topics, uh, but for now uh, we do have a Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And everyone, stay geeky. Stay geeky, America.